Hello, bonjour, entente. I'm Paula Simons, and this is the second part of my conversation with Brandy Morin on Alberta Unbound. Brandy Morin is an award-winning Indigenous journalist whose work has appeared everywhere from the CBC to APTN to Al Jazeera, from the New York Times to The Guardian to The National Observer. But she got her start as a beat reporter with the Stony Plain Reporter and Spruce Grove Examiner, sister papers covering the suburbs just west of Edmonton. In this, the second part of our conversation, we talk about the way journalism changed her life, about some of the big, big stories she's been covering lately, and about her own rejection of Alberta identity. Absolutely. I always loved to write and to read. And I had a brief stint as a reporter when I was 21 years old where an editor took a chance on me. And I did that for about eight months, but I didn't get back into it until I was 29. And, you know, I started out in print when I was 29 at the Stony Plain Reporters Spruce Grove Examiner. (laughs) where (laughs) Yeah, I learned all the ropes uh, on the ground. I had an incredible editor named Carson Mills. And uh, he saw that desire and drive in me and uh, again, took me on and I just loved it. I treated every story, whether it was a story about, you know, a school book club or a grandma making pies. I wanted to have each and every one of these stories shine. But then when I started telling Indigenous stories, that's when um, that passion was really ignited. And I began to go on this journey of discovery and rec- you know, reclamation with myself and my family history. And it did coincide very much with my healing journey and continues to. And, you know, it, it just door after door, you know, began opening once I, you know, started focusing exclusively on Indigenous stories. And that's what I've been doing for at least eight years now is, is, is solely Indigenous stories. I want to talk about some of that journalism work. I mean, some of which you've done well after this book went to press. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about you and the Pope. Mm -hmm. So you covered the story when a delegation of First Nations and Métis people from Canada went to Rome to meet with him. What was that experience like? Yeah. So at the end of March and the beginning of April, I flew over to Rome to cover this event of historic meeting that the Pope had invited First Nation, Métis, and Inuit uh, delegates and survivors of the residential school system. But, you know, I prepared for it for a while, and I have done countless stories about the residential school system and with survivors. So I thought that I was, like, prepared. I knew that it would be difficult to be there. But when I stepped off of that plane in Rome, at the home where colonization began, and there was just this this heaviness that descended upon me and it was like a storm that whole week in Rome it was it was you know I was trying to stay focused on the work and we were so incredibly busy but I would go back to my hotel room and cry on my bathroom floor I I almost felt like I was carrying all of the stories and the tragedy and the losses of generations and 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 of my cookum and our family And so that was all extra in doing my job. And then on the Friday, 
on the last day of the meetings when all of the delegates were meeting with the Pope, I was listening in the Vatican press room and watching and stunned when the Pope issued the apology because nobody thought that it would happen there. And, you know, he had been invited to come to indigenous territories here in Canada to give that apology, but everybody was caught off guard and I was stunned and it was a really, really powerful moment. And I, I took off running out to St. Peter's Square and some of the delegates were coming out for a media scrum and I stayed there for a few minutes and I heard drums in the distance, you know, in, in a different area of the square. And I just, I left that scrum and I, and I followed that sound. I, I heard drums and singing and there were First Nations dancers uh, dancing in the square. And it was just so powerful to see. And Dr. Wilton Littlechild who's from Muscogee and he's in his late seventies. He's a survivor. He's been advocating for this, uh, you know, this uh, apology for years and years. He got up out of his walker and, and began to dance. And it was just such a powerful moment. And literally Paula, it had been raining for about three days straight there. And at that moment, after that apology, the sun, you know, was shining in on that square. The clouds like had literally parted. It was just such a powerful moment, and there's so many different emotions that you're experiencing, but that was a moment that I was so grateful and blessed to witness and be a part of, and then we came home to continue, you know, the work that has to be done and wait for the Pope's arrival. Did you think, I mean, did did, did the delegation think that he was really going to come? Because it was, I mean, I remember, you know, I was following your live tweets from from Rome, and when you posted the footage of Willie Littlechild dancing. It was, I mean, people who are listening to this can probably see it in their mind's eye because you've described it so vividly. But I mean, watching the video, it was extraordinary to think what they had accomplished. But I didn't know if he was really going to come. Did you think then that, that the trip was inevitable? Yeah, because so many survivors and 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 leaders, you know, had told me that the, poly- the apology you know, wouldn't be solidified if it wasn't given on Indigenous territories and on the lands where these abuses against children happen. And we started hearing about, you know, the Pope's health failing and that he was canceling other trips. And so I did wonder, you know, if it was going to happen, if he was going to make it. But from what I understood from talking to the survivors that had met right with him, they they said that he felt you know, that he came across as, as genuine and grieved and, and disturbed by, you know, what he learned by our children uh, dying in these schools and our and our children, you know, experiencing these different abuses, you know, that he wanted to move forward in that. And so it was something when he came and, and seeing him being wheeled around here in Muscogee to Lac-Saint-Anne to Quebec City to Iqaluit, it was something to see that happen for sure. And I know that it meant a lot to many people and many didn't want anything to do with it. And this is a process that isn't necessarily black and white. So over the course of the trip, I was really following his time in Alberta mm-hmm. more closely, of course, because I was here. But I had the sense that as the trip went on, the nature of the apology changed and became less formulaic and more heartfelt or am i do you think i'm i'm seeing something that wasn't there yeah i mean maybe in alberta um you know it was like that and and just uh something that was quite significant for me was 
that he went to Lac St. Anne and I was blown away by that because my Coco was born not too far from there and she grew up going there and my mom grew up going there and I went there as a kid and on that day that I went out to cover it I had to go out on the media bus um, my mom had been telling me um, for a long time before she wasn't going she didn't want anything to do with it she didn't like the Catholic Church or the Pope and she decided that day to go with my auntie and so my, my mom and my auntie were there and it was a very powerful healing circle moment uh, for us and my mom was crying and you know telling me how Cookham forgave the church many years before but that my mom needed to go there you know for Cookham and for our family and so that was really special for us and I, I literally was just a few feet away from the Pope when he went down to bless the waters I was actually laying on the sand watching him and I was just trying to take it in but then when he went to Quebec Things were different in Quebec, and I was not impressed with what I seen there. It was it was more politicians and people showing up to take selfies with the survivors, and the self the survivors kind of like faded into the background, and it looked like a rock show for the Pope. But then, when he went to a Calouet, it was very intimate and a beautiful ceremony, and the Pope actually spoke the words "I'm sorry" in the Inuk language, and so. Uh, again, that that kind of brought it back to the purpose of why he was here in Canada. Um, people need to understand that just because the Pope left on a plane back to Rome does not mean that this is over. Yeah. What what goes hand in hand with that apology is action, and there are several different asks from you know Indigenous survivors and leaders uh, of the Church that they have yet to to undertake and so a lot of people are going to be uh, watching very closely to you know to see if this apology was you know genuine or what has often been you know in the past where whether it's politicians or similar apologies you know it, it's not in, met with endorsed by true meaningful reparation and, and action and this journey of reconciliation you know I've said time and time again and uh, leaders and elders have also told me this is not something that's going to happen overnight. This is something that will take generations to happen, you know, and it's, you know, it's unfolding now, which is amazing, and incredible. But, you know, we've got a lot of truth and ugliness to unearth yet and to move through, to reckon with and to remediate, you know, as a country. That's not something that's comfortable. Um, you know, but it's something that we need to do and to make this this place that we call Canada into a country that was meant to be upon, you know, the signing of the treaties where treaties were signed to, you know, live together and share the land and the resources, to share the prosperity and to be equal, you know, uh, equal nations together. And so my hope is that that will continue to unfold. I hear that we have we have someone in the background there who wants to be part of this conversation. <laughs> yes, my little girl, Elasia, is home with me today. I just came from four days on the ground on a story, and today well, and I, I have her. <laughs> so that's what I think that's what I want to talk to you about. Over the last few days, I saw your commentary about the terrible incident that happened at the James Smith Cree Nation in Saskatchewan and the way people were telling that story and the behavior of some of the journalists covering that story. You know, when you report on Indigenous issues, whether you're reporting on what's happening with the Wet'suwet'en 
on the West Coast or what's happening uh, in Alberta or what's happening in other parts of, of this country. I mean, you're able to report from a position of authority and trust. So what happens when there's a crisis like the one at James Smith and journalists show up from all over the place, including from you know international reporters? I don't know what question I'm asking. I'm just... I- want you to talk about what it was mm-hmm. like for you you know i i wasn't i didn't go to james smith pre but i was uh talking about you know the way that this tragedy was being covered and you know i was up in fort fort chippewan working on a different story but it, i was just cringing when i you know was seeing how journalists were trying to access the community and trying to extract that uh that trauma that these families have been going through since these these murders happened and there was a international media outlet that reached out to me and asked me to do a colorful feature on this community in the wake of this tragedy and they asked me to do it by making phone calls to the community and my first thought was like are you kidding me like first off you don't go about you know being a journalist in Indian country the traditional way it's just never worked the relationship between the media and indigenous communities, it's much like the relationship between Canada and indigenous communities. It's broken and it needs to be reconciled. So, you know, if I was to do anything, I would need to be on the ground there. It's not yeah. something that you need to parachute, you know, that you have to, that you can parachute into. And if I were to do, do go on the ground, I would, you know, want to have that time and ability to be able to establish relationships with people there. And I'm just not the type of journalist and storyteller that wants to extract that trauma right then and there. I know that there are others that are doing their job or there are representatives such as, you know, leaders, the chiefs or the authorities that can help give that information. You don't go in there trying to you know, mine information like vultures from these families and survivors that are already marginalized, you know, that in many cases are already living in a lot of undesirable uh, circumstances. It's just not my style at all. And I hope that the media would, you know, shift to understanding that, you know, you're going into a nation, you're going into a different culture. And so many things can get misconstrued and under and misunderstood and people people's lives are at stake and they can get hurt. Yes, we are journalists, we are reporters that are bringing information to the public, but we are also dealing with human beings and human lives. And there needs to be respect and protocol that needs to go hand in hand with that. And I, I think that that's missing in a lot of cases. You know, reading your book and talking to you now make me reflect not very comfortably on some of my own past work as a journalist, where, you know, you call it trauma mining. So many of the stories that I wrote over the years were stories of pain and horror and injustice. And I thought I was writing them from a good place, you know, fighting for justice, giving voice to the voiceless. It took me a long time to realize that one, I didn't need to give voice to the voiceless. I needed to get out of the way so they could have their own voice. Thank you very much. And two, that, you know, my quest for justice was a little bit wrapped up with my own white savior complex. Also, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. But those stories were real. Nobody else was reporting them. Yeah. And I felt like, well, it was better, you know, when I look back, maybe it was better to report them imperfectly than not at all. Mm-hmm. But I do worry that so much of our reportage, all of, you know, all of us who are part of the the media complex, it's reporting stories of pain 
and suffering and loss and not nearly enough emphasis on the stories of resilience you know not just resilience but triumph yeah so how do you how do you choose your stories and how do we change the narrative well you know i mean the majority of the stories that i'm covering in 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 indian country do deal with trauma and pain but there is you know i have the ability to put the context behind that um, which I think, again, is missing in a lot of coverage because, again, it gives room for people to make their own assumptions as to, you know, the situations when they don't understand, you know, the background. And so I try to do that as much as I can. And there are stories out there, you know, of triumph and, 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 and the beauty of our people and our culture and our languages. And I try to intertwine that if I'm telling these stories of pain and trauma. And I try to um, emphasize those things. So it's not always that I can balance them out, that I can get, you know, a certain amount of, you know, these, uh, you know, inspirational stories. That's just not going to happen because our people are in um, crisis mode all over the place. And so I, too, believe that my work is human rights work and justice work. And, um, you know, by telling these stories, respectfully, accurately, and meaningfully, you know, that um, that's resonating with uh, people that are taking them in. And I just try to do the best that I can. And even when it's difficult, because even after the fact, when whether I've told a story about various injustices, and people are sharing these painful and intimate pieces of themselves with the world you know I don't just leave them high and dry after I have to build these relationships with them and I follow up with them and I you know ask them how they're doing and uh, make sure that they have access to these stories right because there are a lot of different things that come up for people when they're talking to the media and sharing these stories and they don't necessarily have those resources so you have to go above and beyond and do this extra work and it's draining yeah. It is draining because not only is it draining to tell these stories, but you're going after and you're you're uh, building these relationships and speaking and, and and talking to these you know various survivors and victims, families who've lost their daughters and and different things, and that takes a lot out of you. But I don't believe that people will be as successful at doing this or feel good all around as a person if they don't incorporate that you know into this work that that we do no exactly one of the reasons i started this podcast i sometimes have to remind myself what what why did i want to do this again oh yes it was because i wished to interrogate issues of alberta identity and who got to speak for alberta and who got to claim to be the voice of alberta and i really wanted to try first of all to look at why we tell the narratives about this place that we do and then to literally try to give voice to different perspectives, people who aren't always heard in the national narrative of this place. And I wanted to talk to you about what you make of this question of Alberta identity and the political division that comes from it. Do you identify as an Albertan? Does that have a meaning for you? I did growing up, and it's a lot more difficult now that I know what I know. It's more difficult for me because this territory that they call Alberta was stolen from my ancestors. And the richness of these lands, you know, has helped millions of people that live here prosper. While, you know, many of uh, my ancestors or indigenous people live in the gutters of society 
they live in these reservations and it, it's really difficult for me looking at it that context. I identify as a sovereign First Nations woman. I identify as a Michelle Band woman, even though that land was taken, even though our nation no longer exists under the eyes of the federal government. I know who I am and uh, I still stand firm in that identity. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to the politics of Alberta, I'm always looking at it from an Indigenous lens. I just returned from Fort Chippewan in northern Alberta, where it's the uh, 100th anniversary of the creation of the Wood Buffalo National Park up there this year. And it's run by the federal government and the province. And the Indigenous people there were chased out of their territories to make that park. And they live in Fort Chipper now. And to get to that park, is like a 10-minute boat ride. And I was speaking with uh, Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewa and First Nation and his own, his own grandmother was chased out of that park and her house burnt down. And they want to access their lands. They want the control of that park and their territories returned back to them. And so it's things like that that I think about, that we are in a time now of this truth and reconciliation. And I pray and hope that we can you know, work together to, um, like I said, to reconcile and remedy all of us. So Paula, it really is something that I struggle with to identify as an Albertan. Thank you so much, Brandy, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you to your production assistant in the background who has brought. <laughs> Paula, I want to thank you for your work and thank you for reaching out to me and for spotlighting my work in this story. I I just I've been working so hard at this for so long and so to have you do this in my home territories means so much to me and I really hope that you know it reaches uh, the hearts of a lot of people and that it you know can open up space for you know conversations and ultimately to bring us together I don't want any of this to be about division it's just about uh, this truth sharing and telling and um, coming together. So hi, hi. Hi, hi. Brandy Morin's best-selling new book, Our Voice of Fire, A Memoir of a Warrior Rising, is available now from the House of Anansi Press. Alberta Unbound is edited and produced by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Paula Simons, an independent senator from Treaty 6 Territory. This is our fourth season. For all of you who've been listening since the very beginning, thank you, thank you, and thank you again. And if you are just discovering us now, I invite you to explore our back catalogue of conversations with remarkable Albertans, available wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review and a rating, and do share us with friends who might like to listen. Thank you again, merci, and hi hi.